0: And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's a l l b i r d dot code SUPER24. Pulling up
1: to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block.
0: Welcome to Pax Britannica. Episode 25, The Spanish Match. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. Last time, we heard how the burgeoning Thirty Years' War continued to, uh, burgeon, as Frederick, Elector Palatine, and son-in-law to James, accepted the crown of Bohemia, before being promptly kicked out by the highly irate Austrians, and then chased fully from his own lands by the Bavarians. James had hoped to bring about peace in Europe through a marriage between his son Charles and the Spanish Infanta, Maria Anna. If Charles married the Infanta, a member of the Spanish Habsburgs, then they could reign in their Austrian cousins. In other words, James gaining a daughter-in-law might help save his son-in-law. A secondary, but very close, benefit of such a marriage would be the dowry, a princess of the vast and fabulously wealthy Spanish Empire would bring with her several hundred thousand pounds. This was just what James's purse desperately needed, because as we also heard last time, despite the best efforts of his courtiers and ministers, James just would not stop spending. The only way to return royal finances to anywhere close to the black. Would be a significant cash injection, and as we left off last week, the usual way to receive that amount of money, taxation through Parliament, had crashed and burned with the dissolution of the 1621 Parliament. The Parliament had been dissolved because they were treading on ground which James considered both private and a decision for the royal family alone. It was also his last remaining option for both financial solvency and peace in Europe the Spanish match. This was not a popular decision. If Parliament had been discussing the marriage with unbridled enthusiasm for a Spanish union, I'm sure James wouldn't have been quite so offended. Instead, they were openly critical of the idea, and dismissing the Parliament did not make the policy's unpopularity go away. Instead, without a vehicle to make their displeasure known to the king, public opinion made itself known in other ways. Sermons preached against a union with a Catholic, and especially a Spaniard, as did endless printed tracts which attacked not the king, of course, but his evil counsellors who had led him astray. The court, which had never been popular, came under increased attack. The Overbury case once again came to light as a stick to beat over the metaphorical heads of James's court, particularly the Duke of Buckingham. Nevertheless, James insisted on ploughing on ahead with the match, despite its previous failure and its increasingly clear unpopularity in his kingdoms. Sir John Digby, newly made Earl of Bristol, was dispatched to Madrid to act as the King's embassy and continue the negotiations. Bristol, was led to believe that the Spanish were now acting in good faith, and that they were equally interested in bringing the conflict over the Palatinate to a peaceful conclusion. After many months of negotiation, Bristol believed he had reached an agreement with Philip IV, a marriage between Prince Charles and Infanta Maria Anna was possible, and that once it was agreed, Spanish troops would join with the English in restoring the electorate to Frederick. Well, that's alright then. The marriage would go ahead, Prince would marry Infanta, peace would be enforced through the union of Protestant and Catholic, and James would get a boatload of cash. The Thirty Years' War would be called as such as a kind of joke, made by historians who are a famously hilarious lot, and everything would work out nicely. Of course not. Bristol had been had. The Count de Olivares, who you might remember from our interview with Professor John Elliott, had risen to power on the Spanish council, and he denied that Bristol had ever received any kind of assurance that either the negotiations would lead anywhere, nor that Spain would act against Austria. It didn't help Bristol's case that, despite Charles's apparent love for the Infanta, the feelings were not reciprocated. She despised Charles as a heretic, as did Olivares, and she would not willingly marry him. Her brother, the king, would not make her, and so Olivare's job was now to let the English down in such a way that wouldn't lead to war. And now we get to introduce Prince Charles as an actor in the narrative for the first time, instead of simply watching from the sidelines and occasionally getting to knight someone. By this point, he was in his 20s, and shared many of the opinions of his father about what a king was and was not allowed to do. And as you might imagine, that first column was much larger than the second. Like his father, he was furious that the commons thought it proper to discuss his marriage. It was his marriage, and if he wanted to marry a Spanish Catholic, then he would marry a Spanish Catholic. And he did want to, very much so. He had convinced himself that he was in love with the Infanta, and Gondomar surely supported this belief. At one point he wrote to Gondomar and described him as his alcahuete, because he seemed so helpful in trying to bring this marriage agreement together. Professor Croft puts this down to Charles's Spanish being less than fluent. I am even less fluent in Spanish, but Croft describes the term as having the same connotation as pimp. So Charles unknowingly called the Spanish ambassador his pimp. With the start of 1623, frustrated with the lack of progress towards a concrete marriage deal, Charles and Buckingham began planning an act of daring do. Surely inspired by his father's wooing of his mother, the prince and the duke put into action a plan that would handily surpass James's storm wrecked voyage to Denmark. Charles and Buckingham would go to Spain, alone and relatively undercover. Such a show of trust and affection would surely win over those still opposing the marriage. On the 17th of February, 1623, Thomas and John Smith rode to Dover, from where they sailed to the French port of Boulogne, just to the south of Calais. Thomas and John Smith were, of course, the Duke of Buckingham and Prince Charles, because, of course, they would pick the most stereotypically fake names. Once they arrived in France, they rode to the Spanish court at Madrid, arriving on the 7th of March to the surprise of everyone. Imagine it. The court is having an ordinary day. Favours are being exchanged, rumours passed around – maybe a bit of plotting on the side, when the doors are barged open by a dishevelled Duke of Buckingham, who announces Charles, the Prince of Wales, heir apparent to the kingdoms of England, Scotland and Ireland. In walks the Prince, equally dishevelled from the thousand miles they have travelled. The room is shocked, and Charles strides up to the Infanta and sweeps her off her feet. Okay, so I shouldn't write fiction. None of that is how it happened. Most likely, Charles and Buckingham travelled fairly comfortably, stopping at many of the most prestigious courts on the route, including at Paris, where the duo would meet King Louis and his sister, Henrietta Maria. Remember that name. Upon their arrival at Madrid, they would have been announced by the relevant officials and would have been completely shevelled. Thank you very much. Gondomar, now in Spain, was thrilled at their arrival. His reaction would be in the minority. Philippe IV, the Count de Olivares, the Infanta herself, hell, even the Earl of Bristol, were much less enthused at the sudden and unexpected arrival of Charles. The official, if secret, policy of the Spanish court was the careful and painless extrication from the marriage negotiations. Now, the proposed groom was there in person. I expect there were a lot of forced smiles during those first few days in Madrid but they'll very rapidly stopped trying. So, with his job now infinitely more complicated by the arrival of the proposed groom, Olivares got to work fabricating excuses for the match not to go ahead. The Spanish court demanded that James repeal the anti-Catholic laws in his kingdoms. He was already practising toleration by barely enforcing the laws at all, but that was not enough. He had to repeal them, so the Spanish said, to ensure that the Catholic Infanta, her entourage, and her possible children would be free to worship as they pleased. Olivares insisted on this, knowing full well that this would be nearly impossible for James to do. Parliament had been very clear that the persecution of Catholics had to continue, and while James could make use of his royal prerogative, it could lead to serious unrest. On this point, the two sides returned to their stalemate. Spain demanded further toleration. James hummed and hawed to balance Spanish wishes with the opposition of his subjects. This was not Olivares's only weapon. He brought in the big guns. He brought in the Pope. Gregory XV was the pontiff at this time, and any royal marriage between a Catholic and a heretic would require his approval through a papal dispensation. The Spanish publicly called for one, in order that the marriage which they absolutely wanted to happen could happen, but Olivares at least never expected Gregory to say yes. To make sure of it, the Count sent a special envoy to Rome, insisting that no dispensation be granted. This would make the match impossible, and the blame could be laid at the feet of the papal throne. Oh, we'd love to have this marriage. It's the one thing we really want, but that pesky pope won't let us. Sorry, our hands are tied. So imagine Olivares' surprise and frustration when a message from the papacy arrived, complete with a papal dispensation for the marriage. Gregory was thrilled at the idea. Olivare's secret message had arrived too late, and Gregory jumped at the opportunity. He assumed that such a marriage would have to lead to better treatment for Catholics in the Three Kingdoms, and may even lead to Charles's own conversion back to Rome. It was even possible that such a marriage would lead to the return of the British Isles to the Catholic fold. Any of these would be fantastic successes for the pontiff. However, once he was made aware that the Spanish didn't actually want a marriage, he played along. That first dispensation wasn't the final dispensation, obviously, and in order to receive the real one, the papacy demanded further concessions, far more than Spain had demanded. The Infanta and her household would have greater religious freedom than had been already promised. That was doable, and in fact a Catholic chapel designed by Inigo Jones was being built for their use already. The kicker was that James was to get both the Privy Council and Parliament to agree to the marriage. Hmm. The Council had their concerns about the matter, absolutely, but it's hard to imagine there being much resistance from them. Parliament, on the other hand, well, Hell would freeze over before the vocally anti Catholic, anti Spanish MPs agreed to the royal marriage. And everyone knew this. Parliament had been very vocal about their opposition to the marriage and their desire for war with Spain. Madrid knew it, Rome knew it, it was the perfect obstacle to the proposed marriage. To only add to the pressure, Olivares announced to all that the late King, Philip III, had confessed on his deathbed that he had never intended to allow the marriage. Further, the Count reiterated the fact that Spain would not fight Austria for the English. Charles's surprise visit to Madrid had achieved little. On a personal level, the Infanta was now firmly convinced that she despised Charles, not just for his heresy anymore, but personally. The feeling was rapidly becoming mutual. While Charles and Buckingham had been in Spain, James had been in constant contact. Bedridden, he had little else to do anyway, and he wrote to his quote, sweet boys regularly, passing on news from the Villiers clan and sending Buckingham's responses back to them. The endless series of obstacles to the marriage made its prospects clear even to the king. He wrote that, quote, if my baby's credit in Spain mend not these things, I will bid farewell to peace in Christendom. James could bid away. In March 1623, the same month that Charles had arrived in Madrid, news arrived that the electorate had been formally revoked from Frederick, and granted to the loyal Catholic Duke of Bavaria, Maximilian. This was a further strike against the Palatine, And further fanned the flames of opinion that now it was the Austrians going too far. With war looking increasingly likely between England and the Austrian Habsburgs, there was one highly concerning factor Charles, the king's son and heir, was in the court of their Spanish cousins. As the chances of a marriage betrothal became mere fantasy, the chance that the Spaniards would stay out of the war also evaporated. James needed to get his heir and his favourite, the two men the king loved the most in the world, out of Spain. To do this, he agreed to everything. James and the Privy Council swore an oath in front of Coloma, the new Spanish ambassador, to meet the terms of the contract which Charles and Philip IV had signed. This included secret terms which promised the revocation of anti-Catholic laws within three years, and the forgiveness of £36,000 worth of debt owed to the crown by recusants. In August, Charles and James accepted that the Infanta would not go back with Charles right now, but perhaps she would join him later, once the negotiations were complete. By this point, both sides were coming to terms with the fact that this was all a sham. Charles and Buckingham left Spain, and in October 1623, They arrived back in England, landing at Portsmouth. They were greeted by cheering crowds, parties in the streets, the ringing of church bells, and displays of fireworks. This jubilation was not just for the return of the prince, but because he had returned without a Spanish wife at his side. While negotiations would continue, the only person still holding on to the prospect of a marriage was James. Charles and George's excellent adventure had left both convinced that the Spaniards had been playing them all along, based on their experiences in Madrid. They informed James that the Spanish had been leading him on for years, with no intention to commit to a marriage nor restrain the Austrians. James refused to hear it, but he didn't need to. Prince and Duke were now an unassailable partnership forged in the months of close proximity and foreign adventure. While James refused to cut off negotiations, those at court who answered first to Villiers or to the Prince ignored and sidelined the Spanish representatives. Considering their combined influence, this shut them out of nearly all opportunities to meet with the King or influence policy. Worse for the Spanish, the Duke and the Prince began to actively work against them, openly calling for war with both Spain and Austria. They had only to point to the endless victories of the Austrians on the continent as they rolled through the Palatinate. England had to respond, they argued, and a parliament was needed to pay for it. During this period, James, in his frustration, initially described all those calling for another parliament as traitors, which is a bit much when one of those was his son. His experience of the last one had been so poor that it took two months for Charles and Buckingham to convince him of its necessity. All the while, the Crown's debts continued to rise. James finally relented in December 1623, putting out the summons for a Parliament to meet in February 1624. James had condemned and dissolved the 1621 Parliament for discussing the royal marriage, but his subjects were already discussing it, and as their representatives the Commons considered it their duty to discuss it also. In trying to silence their criticism, James had shown his kingdoms just how out of step he was with them. The summons were followed by a wave of anti-Catholic, Anti-Spanish sentiment in every feasible arena, particularly in print. English print culture was exploding over the marriage controversy. It was being discussed and debated in every pub, every churchyard, every market, and those with access to a print shop made their views available more widely through pamphlets and circulars. Pamphlets such as the Vox Coeli, which described a heavenly conference of deceased royals. Henry VIII and his three crowned children, as well as Anna of Denmark and her son Henry. At this conference, all of them voted against a Spanish marriage, with the exception of Mary. She was a Catholic and the wife of a Spanish king. Hardly the most subtle of metaphors, but popular nonetheless. Both Charles and Buckingham were praised in a multitude of publications for both discovering the deception of the Spaniards and for leading the charge for war. This week's episode was a slightly shorter one, because I've been travelling a lot recently. We are also agonisingly close to the 100,000 download mark, so please consider recommending Pax Botanica to a friend. Now's a very good time for them to start listening. We are about to kill a king, after all. Thank you to the peers of the realm. The Royal Headsman, executed today. Her Grace, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersitch, the Most Honourable Marchioness of Scullion, Lady Jennifer, the Right Honourable Countess of Shrewsbury, Elaine Dickens, the Countess of Surrey, Jean Buckley, the Right Honourable Earl of Oxford, Christopher Grogan, the Earl of Somerset, Brendan Bonner, the Countess of Cornwall, Belinda Clarence, the Right Honourable Earl of Hereford, Christopher Remo, the Earl of Dunbar, Angus Wilson, Alan Goldstein, the Earl of Southampton, the Earl of Northampton, Justin Drowns, the Earl of Nottingham, John Toogood, and the Earl of Worcester, Alan Goldstein. If you want to join their ranks, go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Every pledged tier comes with a personalised ad-free RSS feed, and the higher ranks come with extra perks. Thank you to Sounds Like an Earful for providing the music in today's episode, to my entire House of Lords, and to you for listening.